Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Marilyn Todd's latest Victorian thriller introduces Julia McAllister, England's first crime scene photographer, and offers readers the same racy-pacy action they've come to expect in her 13 Ancient Rome mysteries. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Marilyn explains why she just adores her irrepressible heroines and what it's like to live on a French hilltop surrounded by chateaux and vineyards. But before we get to Marilyn, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Julia's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave us a review so that others will find us too. But now, here's Marilyn. Hello there, Marilyn, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. And I am absolutely chuffed to be here, Jenny. I really am. Thank you so much for inviting me. And what a fantastic, fine joys of binge reading is. It's I'm a kid in a candy shop here. That's wonderful. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, was there some sort of catalyst for it? Not really. I was, as a kid, I was bedridden a lot of the time as a small child. And not being a girly girl, um, there's only so many Teddy's tea parties you can host. And I was a it's just me and my imagination, really. I'm an only child. So I, I, I don't know, I'd look at the drawings on my mum's dressmaking patterns and I'd ask, you know, who are these impossibly elegant creatures? You know, where are they going? Where are they, you know, meeting? And who are they sort of dressing up for? And in fact, every picture I'd look at, a story would form until it got to the point where even school projects came out as stories with characters, conversations. And in those days, you literally cut and paste. And I'd pour over, as I say, I was stuck in bed, I'd pour over National Geographic magazines, whisking myself off on these fantastic adventures, discovering lost tombs in the desert and diving shipwrecks in, in, in shark-infested waters, paddling up the Amazon. And, well, okay, the novelty of wanting to slash my way through jungles so more off. I was, even at that age, I was never a camping sort of girl. Uh, and spiders weren't my thing much either. But what I could see myself doing was being the first woman to lead a wagon train, that sort of thing. So, I mean, we're talking heroines even back then. Yes, yes. And all these years later, you've published 16 historical thrillers, including the 13th book, Claudia Seferius. Yes, Seferius series, set in first century Rome. Is that where you started out, in first century Rome, or did you have some other unpublished works that perhaps didn't see the light of day? I'd written a a swashbuckling romance, historical romance, 
which was called the Black Pearl, but don't tell Captain Sparrow, he's nicked it off me. And I submitted it to one of the top literary agents. And, and then I got the only rejection letter I've ever had. Uh, it was a standard typewritten affair. And at the bottom, she'd written how much she enjoyed it, how well the, this book read, but it wasn't actually what she was looking for. So I rang her up and I said, what are you looking for? And she said, ancient Rome, thought, don't know that. Crime, don't know that. A proactive heroine, we're getting warmer. Humour, definitely. So I said, I can do that. And she said, great, send me the first 50,000 words or 5,000 words, whatever it is, you know, the first 50 pages. And there wasn't time to panic, but Jenny, I tell you, I will never forget answering the phone three weeks later. And the first word she said, literally the first word when I picked up the phone was bingo. Oh, fantastic. And I know. And and I, I tell you, there wasn't half a run on midnight oil after that. Stocks of elbow elbow grease ran out overnight. I have never seen so much sweat dripping off a body and how many noses going to grindstones. Three months it took to put that together, three months really concentrated work. Macmillan took it up and the paperback was reprinted after three unheard of weeks. And then they say things come in threes and it certainly did without one. That's wonderful. So was that the first Claudia book? That was it. I, Claudia. How wonderful. Actually, I loved that um, name now that you've mentioned it because Probably many people might not even remember it now, but of course there was a very famous Roman series called I, Claudius by Robert Graves, which was very highly regarded and became a TV series. Was it a deliberate play Hell on yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted people to see right from the outset what they were getting. And if you've ever seen the very first cover, which is... Claudia filing her nails with a bloody great dagger. Um, the twinkle in her eye says it all. Um, it, it's not to say that Macmillan didn't have a bit of a tussle with Robert Graves' estate, but we got there in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I loved the cheekiness of it. That that was really, and it was very much tongue-in-cheek, oh, obviously. Oh yes. But you're kind of, although I think we'll get on to talking about how seriously you take your history. I don't know enough about ancient Rome, but there is a, a large amount of very fascinating detail there. So I think you have become an expert on ancient Rome in, in the years since. But um, you you kind of also have this rather nice feeling of thumbing your nose a little bit at, at too much historical seriousness. I'm not sure that I I'm not sure I thumb my nose at it. I do feel it's important to to set the scene and I mean set it properly. The background needs to be right, the details need to be right, the facts need to be right. But but here's the thing. As far as I see it, the people living in those times weren't living in history. It's all relative. They were living in contemporary settings like you and I are now. You know, we don't look back now and think, I wonder how people will write about us in 100 years, 1,000 years or whatever. And so I make it, as long as the background, the setting is there, I make it feel contemporary. You know, I, I if I had to write in Chaucer's time and I wrote it in Chaucer's language, none of us would understand, certainly not me. 
And, and I, I don't see the yes. point of throwing in a, a, a forsooth here and a forsooth there. Here a forsooth, there a forsooth. Anyway, to, um, just to try and make it <laughs> historical, because um, as far as I can see, if the period is anchored properly, everything else follows. And, and, you, and to be honest, you've done that in, in Golden Blood. Thank you. That's lovely. Um, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Claudia later, but... You've got a new book out, and it's not set in ancient Rome at all. It's it's a it's a change of location and time setting. It's um, lower class, middle class, lower middle class Victorian England, and it's another female heroine, England's first crime scene photographer, Julia McAllister. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to shift? I mean, after all these books, I guess ancient Rome might have been losing its appeal a little bit, but what made you decide to shift your time period and setting? I think um, this is a time of great change. We're, we're just on the cusp. This is 1895 and sort of bustles are out, bicycles are in. You can, you can smell emancipation in the air. This is a time where women were no longer obliged to work on the land or were confined to factories, although a good many of them did. Uh, but a good many of them were also telegraph operators. They were bookkeepers, secretaries. Um, this is the time where we're seeing the first women architects, the first women dentists. The British Medical Association is admitting female members. And, and hey, let's have the first female crime scene photographer because at the same time, Speed and is, is suddenly the key to success. Um, railways have driven down prices. It's made travel affordable. And now we're getting telephones and electricity almost run of the mill. And in terms of photography, we're on the brink as well. It's, it's, um, we're looking at the birth of moving pictures. And this is all cutting edge stuff. And, and, and she's part of it. And I'm, I'm excited about it. It sounds great. And why? Why? What made you decide, though, to move to Victorian England yourself? We, did you did you look at a lot of other periods and decide that was the one that attracted you the most? Or no. Um, what triggered this was the Klondike Museum in Seattle. Now I know what you're going to say, <laughs> really. Um, it's. I was it. It's, uh, um, I can't remember its full name, something like the Klondike Gold Rush National Historic Park or something. Anyway, you can see why I shortened it. But outside the plaque, hang on, let me find this. Yeah, the plaque reads, Adventure and hardship, dreams made, hopes shattered, lives changed, a city transformed. That's the plaque on the outside. And... Inside, looking at the photos of that suffering, the challenges those people faced, the bones of the 3,000 pack animals who died on one trail alone and whose bones and bodies still lie there today, I, I just knew that I needed to write about someone who took images that would also change lives. And like I said, in 1895, there were no crime scene photographers in England. The Parisian police are getting some success 
with a, a very basic concept. But but over here, uh, I know I'm in France, but in England, <laughs> um, they they were barely getting to grips with mugshots. Never mind fingerprints or footprint casts, much less photographic records that would capture a murder scene before most of the evidence was trampled, contaminated or lost. So it all goes back to the Klondike and the gold rush. That's very interesting. You know, just a little aside, um, I came across last year a cache of daguerreotypes that were taken in gold rush days in California and they Mm -hmm. were actually on display in a, I think it was a Toronto art gallery. It was a Canadian art gallery anyway, but... Mm -hmm. I was utterly captivated by these images. They just seemed to reach out from a previous century and grab you, didn't they? I can I can understand your fascination. Yeah, it was it was the immediacy of it. Um, it was the fact that the new style of photography hadn't actually come in yet. They were still wet plates. They had to develop them within ten minutes of taking them, and that was the immediacy of it. And uh, it was the rawness. And these pictures were then put out. And, and I was just, I just wanted, I just knew I had to write about this. Well, not about that, but I, I had to have somebody who was going to change lives and change the world. Um, in this case, as I say, crime scene photography, even though she's taking dirty pictures. But Yes, yes. So she does take these risque photographs to, to survive. And her models are dying around her and it looks like she's being framed for their murders. So she's she's got this rather desperate and intriguing backstory, which means that she can't just immediately flee and throw herself on the mercies of the police or she feels that she can't. So that sets up a whole series of really wonderful complications in terms of story plotting. You've already got some great conflicts and tensions set up there for a series, haven't you? And and it's obvious from book one that you are planning this as another series. Oh, yeah. The the um, the second book's coming out. Um, uh, it's available for pre-order any second now, I think. I'm just sort of finishing the third one and then I'll be plotting the, the fourth, rolling my sleeves up and getting on with that one. No peace for the wicked. <laughs> Is that just a manner of speaking or is that the title? <laughs> no, 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 I'm never quite that long-winded in the titles. There are always two two words. Um, the next one is cast iron because um, cast iron alibis, cast iron cases, all those sort of things. Yes, fantastic, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that you've we've previously had a quick discussion about this and you mentioned that it was the publisher's decision to put a cover line on, on your uh, Julia book, which says, at an atmospheric thriller. Yes. That, that really, that grabbed me. I thought, is this a new subgenre? So what do you think they mean by that uh, that term? I, I'm not sure. I'm just, hang on a second. I've got it somewhere. I've looked it, I looked this up and I, I, I looked up all the synonyms for, um, yeah, there we go. I've written them down here. The synonyms for atmospheric are impressive, distinctive, moody, special, full of atmosphere, full of character. And I thought, well, if she asks me to pick one, I thought, hell, I'll have them all because I don't know what I was expecting from them. But, you know, that wasn't it. But, yeah, I, 
I'll work with that one. <laughs> the, the next one um, has they, they've changed it down. They've put um, you can run but you can't hide, which I think is perhaps more thrillerish. But it's um, yeah, I, I I don't know what was going on there. But as I say, I like them all. <laughs> yes, I would have picked Moody as being one as well that would be appropriate. But I'll, I'll so- go for impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Go big or go home. (laughs) We haven't mentioned the title of your first one, which we should do in case I'm sure there will be people who wanted to follow up on it. And that that one is called Snapshot, which as a first in a series about a female photographer is obviously very appropriate as well. Yes, they've all got double edges uh, I was going to say double entendre but that's not the same thing but yes they've all got this sort of double meanings to the titles. Yes Julia does have similarities to your Rome goddess Claudia and that they're both young widows pushed to the margins of society and perhaps needing although resenting having a male protector of some kind or other would that be a fair way to describe their situations um I don't see them as um let's put it this way they're both frauds bottom line is they're both frauds and along with Ileona from the Greek series and they're starting to see a theme here as even as I'm talking is that these women spend half their lives plotting how to beat the system they're scheming mm-hmm. to find ways to find and retain their independence. And I, I think it's not so much that they resent male protectors, um, more that society more the fact that society insists that they have them to start with, if you know what I mean. Yes, yes. That they well they're sort of they're marginalized and if they want to find a way to exercise power, they almost have to trick the system. Well, exactly. They're, as I say, they spend all their time scheming to sort of beat the system. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you could think of another little motto for them. You you could they're racy and they're pacey, and you could have a theme of saying you can't keep a good woman down. Absolutely. Or or, or you can't keep a bad woman down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, May May West. Um, when I'm good, I'm very very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. <laughs> I, lo- I love that woman. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that one before. That oh, is lovely. yeah, she was. Yeah, she was a good girl. Was May? <laughs> yes, you've men- mentioned your ancient Greece trilogy. Now, I must admit, I haven't had a chance to look at those books in detail. But I thought even the um, the description of those sounded highly contemporary that you've got this high priestess who's blackmailed into working for Sparta's hated secret police. And it sounded it sounded very contemporary, almost like one of the thrillers that they got got so popular in the 70s, but but set in ancient Greece. I, I don't think those things have changed through the centuries at all. Absolutely don't. Um, and the, the Spartas hate. Hated Sparta's secret police. Um, I mean, they made the um, the is it the Gestapo who were the German intelligence? Yes. Yeah, I mean, they made them look like saints. They were they were nasty, nasty people. Um, and again, she's spending all her time trying to sort of you know just not just stay alive, but to sort of work it to her advantage. <laughs> 
um, because the leader of their secret police. I mean, the the idea was that they would they would keep they weren't slaves, but they were called helots. They were they just kept these people subjugated. Uh, it was a class of people. And the secret police would just um, infiltrate them to hear if there was any subversion going on. And they would just kill people willy-nilly to keep everybody on their toes. It's a horrible system. And so you've become quite an expert on ancient history. Did that take a long time for you to to, um, sort of gain a, a, a toehold there or did you do like a year's research in ancient Rome? I've done a lifetime's research in it. When when other kids were sort of going through wardrobes, the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe to Narnia, I was going through the Lion's Gate to Knossos. My dad had a, a fascination with the ancient world and from sort of, you know, knee high um, from him, I'd learned not just about the ancient buildings and, and the beliefs, and, but the myths and the monsters that grew out of them. And mm. I think I was 14 when my dad bought me I, Claudius, uh, and the Iliad, and um, another Robert Graves uh, collection, The Greek Myths. And, and from this, I could see how tales of, of the Minotaur and Medusa and the Cyclops developed. You know, they, nothing comes out of imagination, pure imagination. There's all, well, usually, um, a spark of truth at the bottom and, um, and how they would grow and evolve. And uh, I've debunked a lot of them in the Claudius series, uh, but also Blind Eye, which was the first in the Greek series, um, revolves around the legend of the Cyclops. My story in the current issue of Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine is also uh, the Day of the Jackal about the Greek jackal god Anubis. It's a contemporary spin on that, a parallel with it. So it never goes away. I can't, it's in my blood, this. Amazing. Look, as you were talking, what came to me was Mary Reno's series about Mykonos, I think it was, and, and Gnosis and the Minotaur. Those were a series of fantastic historical novels from probably the 60s or even the 50s. I'm not sure now when they were published, but did, have you come across? I, I know the name, but I've never read one. Any fiction um, I've read has really been crime or historical romance. Uh-huh, right, yeah, yeah. So there were 13 books in the Claudia series, and then it seems as if you took a little bit of a break from writing before coming back to do Snapshot. Is that <laughs> right? I mean, just... I did not take a break. <laughs> um, oh, you didn't? No. Um, the absolute opposite. Um, at the time, my short stories were doing really well. Um, I, I was getting a, a, quite a few good commissions, Um, from sort of really good places and I I really wanted to concentrate on my short story career and and I did I picked up awards from Ellery Queen a um, a Seamus nomination from the private eye writers of America uh, got in to the hat for the Edgars didn't get anywhere with it but what the hell Um, and, and I was really enjoying it until I went to the Klondike Museum in Seattle and had that little light bulb moment. Um, But 
my first love was always short stories. I, I kind of thought I would always want to write short stories. I don't know how I got into historical romance in the first place. Um, but uh, no, I, I certainly didn't take a break. I've, I've had um, over 50 stories published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. Oh, gosh, I see. Yes. That just explains why. The- not, not in the last couple of years, you understand. <laughs> No, that's. I did see on your website that you've done a lot of short stories, but I mm. admit I haven't. And are they mainly in the historic historical settings? Oh, they they come over all genres. Um, I've had three anthologies of my own stories published. One is the wickedest town in the West, which is Jerome, Arizona. You probably know that. Mm. Um, and um, one was um, commissioned by. Crippen and Landrew, Swords, Sandals and Sirens, which kind of tells the scene for that. They are the ancient ones. And Dead and Breakfast. Um, but no, they cover, the stories cover everything from crime to women's, contemporary women's fiction to comic fantasy. I mean, I was asked to write um, a comic fantasy in the lines of Terry Pratchett. So, you know, you think, what do I know about Terry Pratchett? So suddenly I'm reading Terry Pratchett to find out. <laughs> um, so, no, it's, it's, it, they, they cover most things. But, but, but as always, I am drawn to blood. <laughs> I do like it. I do like it. <laughs> Turning to your wider career away from the specific books, you do say in your Goodreads biography that you live with your husband on a French hilltop, quote, surrounded by vineyards, chateaux and vines. It sounds wonderfully romantic. And I couldn't help thinking that there might be an ideal setting for a, another series sometime in, in, in the French countryside, whether contemporary or historic. Are you ever tempted to do that? Well, let me first say it is absolutely fabulous. We're, we're above a rocky outcrop topped by the remains of a fortress that goes back to the 11th century. And unfortunately, they're back the wrong side in the Crusades and got raised to the ground by Richard the Lionheart's troops. The crypt from the little chapel's still there, but mostly it's just a mound of grassed over rubble and a couple of ditches. Notwithstanding that, they built a new chateau next door, working our way up the hill, complete with crenellations and turrets. And that's sort of like the fairies at the bottom of the garden. If you stand on the balcony in winter, you can just about see the slate roof through the tree. Sounds gorgeous. Beyond all of that, the land drops something like 200 metres to a little river that's got more arms and islands than the goddess Kali. And there's a little, they, just a couple of years ago, they discovered the re- remains of a little Roman bridge at the bottom because we're just off the Via Agrippa as well. And beyond that are all the, the woods and the vines, billions and billions of little bottles in the making. And you ask, is it an ideal setting for a series? Well, when we moved here, we bought what was effectively a field. Um, and it's, as I say, at the top of the hill, had a house built. And con- time consuming isn't the word. But on the other hand, um, you know, I've got a book to write and I need a terrific location. So this new chateau served as a seminary for priests at one point. 
And suddenly I had this book called Scorpion Rising with a college of priestesses, all women, who keep men as sex slaves. And all I needed to do for research was walk down the bottom of my garden. And, and this arrow had a rock. Um, it even was riddled with the caves I needed. I tell you, this book wrote itself. So it's not about series. It's already been written. Oh, amazing. I know. <laughs> so, I, mean, I couldn't believe you'd asked the question. <laughs> you know, I thought, been there, done that. <laughs> so was, was that a standalone, that one? No, it was, um, it was one of the Claudias, and I can't quite remember which because... Yes. My memory's yeah, not yeah. what it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I've had over 100 publishing contracts and it's sort of, you know. Oh, gosh, I can quite believe it must be impossible to keep track of them all now. But that, oh, well, that's... Yeah, I, I don't even try. <laughs> Look, if there's one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other, what would you say it was the secret of your success? It's got to be that first contact with a literary agent. It really has. Um, I'd done my research. I'd drawn up a shortlist, um, but sort of based on the fact that um, if you shoot for the moon, you'll still land among the stars. I set my sights at the top. I went for the top of my list. And because she was behind me 350%, I think that gave me tremendous confidence and, and belief in my writing abilities. And I, I'm pretty sure that it all stems right from that. You know, that woman is a saint. Yes, yes. She gave you the, the permission, really, to sit down and just let your talent flow by the way that you've described well, she, it. She, she honed it in many ways because I'd never thought of ancient Rome. I'd never even thought of crime. Um, a proactive heroine, well, when she said she wanted that, you know, suddenly I created a super bitch, um, you know, one extreme to the other. Um, And, you know, it it just sort of flowed from there. And the encouragement she gave me was tremendous. Um, And from there, you know, once once you're on that platform, it's, it's, you know, it, it helped enormously. In terms of your working habits, are you a plotter or a pantser and are you a workaholic or do you have to kind of push yourself to get going? Well, they're thrillers, which means you've got to plot them tightly. Um, yes. You know, there, there's no way around that. Um, we, we have fingernails for a reason, Jenny, and that's to bite them. Nails are there to be <laughs> bitten. So I've got to make sure that people are biting them. And um, so there's no question of flying by the seat of my pants with it. Um, I've forgotten what the other question was. Whether you're a workaholic, have you got a favourite way to relax and unwind? Oh, um, yes. It's travel. Um, It's, I mean, to actually be paid to do research. (laughs) It's not a bad thing, is it? Um, (laughs) But, you know, the Claudia series gave me the opportunity to um, to get out there and research all these, you know, the likes of Tuscany. And it's not all about the wine. And to go to Umbria. And it's not all about the wine. Um, <laughs> there was Sicily, uh, Croatia, all, the, all these lovely places to go to for inspiration and, and research. 
And, and even when I went to the writing conventions in America and, and the awards ceremonies, it's like, hey, you've got to put a road trip on that, haven't you? So, you know, that threw up the wickedest town in the West. Um, Tombstone threw up China Mary. Even when I went to Hamlin in Germany, it gave me the Pied Piper, my take on the Pied Piper anyway. Um, and it's it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Um, we went to Sweden a couple of weeks ago, and there's a, um, there's a little bay on the water. Well, it's all water, of course. It's an archipelago. Um, but there was this little tiny cove inlet. And I thought, yeah, there's a story there called The Point of No Return. So if you don't see Mr. Todd for a while, you'll know, you know, where he's gone. <laughs> Sounds like you enjoy your travel anyway, and it's wonderful to be able to combine the two. Yeah, mm. work hard, play hard, and sometimes, you know, it, it overlaps a bit. But we, I never work on holiday. I may make notes, um, but a holiday is a holiday, um, and that's yes. it. Yeah, but while I'm here, yes. I'm hunched over like Quasimodo. Look, um, the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and it's predicated a little bit on, I think there is a change in reading habits in the last decade with the digital revolution that people can very much more easily follow an author's work if they find someone they like, and they can read everything in their backlist if they so desire. They can order it at midnight on Amazon or one of the other digital shops if they want to. So so taking that framework of binge reading, it sounds very much as you've been a lifelong binge reader. Who did you like to read and who who are you reading now? Right now I'm reading someone called Jenny Wheeler, Golden Blood, and I'm really enjoying <laughs> it. And I'm not sucking up to you about this. Um, I always read crime. Um, you know, when I was younger, um, like sort of about 16, I went to the library and, and they ran out of crime books because I'd read them all. I was a very fast reader. Um, but the, the joys about digital reading is it's made things so much accessible and affordable. I mean, now people can sort of buy a book and it's, you know, it's, it's not even a cup of coffee. So if they don't like a series, they really haven't lost a lot, have they? I think it's terrific. I, I love this That's explosion. Right. And, of course, with so many indie published authors giving away book one in the series, they can they can actually uh, sort of almost like go to a cheese wine and cheese tasting. They can taste the first book often without having to even buy it. So it's a paradise, really, for readers. I think, it, I think it's an incredible development. I think it's, you know, just brilliant. I really do. Um, yeah, I love it. So you were saying your taste mainly extends to historicals and crime, would yes. that be right? Yes, it is. Uh, what I binge on now um, are the short stories, um, mainly, mainly. Um, I did. I was a great fan of the late Diana Norman. Um, 
she wrote some fantastic historical novels and the way she handled romance was, you know, out of this world. Um, you know, learn, learn from that. I never could. If I studied her for 75 years, um, hats off. Um, I, th I think it's always one of my regrets that I never wrote to her or contacted her and said what a great job she was doing. I think it's now it's only this digital age where people do write to you and say, you know, I'm really enjoying this. Um, because that's what makes writing worthwhile, knowing that people are enjoying what you're doing. You can't please all of the people all of the time. You don't try. But it's it's great to have that feedback. And Diana Norman was was great. Um, now I tend to read the short stories, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Ellery Queen. Stephen King said of Ellery Queen, um, what was it, the best mystery magazine bar none? So, you know, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Yeah, that's great, yes. We are starting to um, to come to the end of our time together. So just circling around and looking back over your very substantial writing career, at this stage, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? I wouldn't. Um, that's purely, I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect. It isn't. I'm not saying I haven't made mistakes. I have. But it's like Rubik's Cube. If you change one thing, you change the whole nature of it, the picture changes, everything slides out of sync. And so I just think, well, okay, that was a mistake. Learn from it, move on. Um, as, you know, the old saying, uh, even if you fall on your face, you're moving forward. So I, I just look at it and think, well, I'll make better mistakes tomorrow. That's great. What can you think of one thing that you would categorise now as a mistake in quotes? I mean, there's that other phrase that the business people use about failing upwards. So it's failure isn't necessarily a bad thing at all if you learn from it. Could you just think of one lesson that you would not prefer not to repeat? Um, as I say, I I can't think of anything offhand. That's not being overconfident, overmodest or not sharing. It's just that, you know, bad things, you just forget about, bury them. Um, and, and as I say, move on. There must be things. I'll probably wake up at three in the morning and think, ah, I could have told her about so-and-so, but I can't think of it now. <laughs> so um, That actually probably says something about your resilience to just pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Oh. And that's me to a T. I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. Um, you know, tomorrow everything will be fine. And it is. You know, life does go on. Yes. So what's next for Marilyn the writer? What are you working on now and any new projects? Well, I, as I say, the second book is due out sort of any minute now. So I'm, I'm now sort of under sort of the clock's ticking, put it that way, to, to wrap up book number three. And then I've got to move on to book number four. Uh, but, you know, you can't just keep on the same railway tracks because you lose focus. And that will be the short stories again. Um, first of all, I've got to, you know, get rid of Mr. Todd. I mentioned this earlier. Um, the point of no return. The point of no return is 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 nagging away inside. It needs to be written. Um, I've also got another couple of short stories bubbling away. 
So I'd like to do that. And, and of course, we're traveling as usual. Um, so, yeah, there's quite a lot going on. Nothing desperately specific other than just, I mean, the Claudius series is so new. It just demands all attention. The Julia series. Yes. And has book three got a title yet? Um, yes, but I don't know whether it's going to be a work, whether this is a working title. It's Bad Blood. Okay. Bad Blood is, is where I'm going with it because um, it's got blood in the title. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, it sounds like you really welcome um, interaction with your readers. And as you've mentioned, it's, it's easier to do these days. Where can readers find you online and how do you prefer to, to interact with them? I, I, um, I'm quite active, put it another way. I'm quite active on Facebook um, and I do interact with fans on there. And I, it's great. It is absolutely great. There's such a good bunch of people. Um, it's terrific. Yeah. Um, and through the website, people can contact me through the website. But I think there's something more immediate about Facebook because, you know, you you just comment and it's it's great. I love it. And I guess when you first started out, Facebook wouldn't have been nearly as much of a, a medium as it is now. I'm, I, it probably was going, but but not really quite as active as it would have been now. You would have seen that change in the way that people can reach out to you. I, I don't think think until it was only relatively recently that I even saw the point of Facebook. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought, you know, if you want to keep in touch with your friends, you keep in touch with your friends. Uh, but now friends takes on a different meaning. And it's amazing how many friends you do make, not just the numbers, you know, so and so has got 5000 friends, really you don't. But you do have really good friends friends there there's a handful of those like there's a handful in life um who are, are just terrific you know perhaps the handful's a bit bigger on Facebook um but it's a lovely little community and they interact with each other as well and I think I I think it's just tremendous for everybody one of the indie uh, publishing gurus has got this phrase super fans that um writers can attract these days super fans and in a way you you were talking about your super fans the one who ones who want to read everything you write aren't you I guess yes <laughs> and I, I think of them as super fans I suppose because and I, actually I do think of them as friends because they're all um yeah they do want to read everything you write and more but um they're interested because they've connected I think um, and it works both ways. I, I'm, you know, I want to follow them. I want to know that they're well and happy, and you know, their ups and downs are um, are taken care of. <laughs> you know, I care about them. Put it that way. Do they give you suggestions for who they'd like you to write about next, or or make suggestions for how the next book might go? That kind I, of. Thing? I don't get involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> My, my imagination has got enough to contend with. It's, it's you know, uh, quite often people say, here's a good idea for a story. You think, no, no, really, this is, this. even if I wanted a, a, any input, you know, it's about 100 million down the list because I just, if I lived till eternity, I'd never write them all. Oh, that's wonderful, Marilyn. Well, look, it's been great having a chance to talk. It really has. And um, I'll look forward to the coming Julia books with great anticipation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, as they say. And I've got to get back to Madame Moustache now, if you don't mind. 
<laughs> oh, that's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Bye for now. It's been a pleasure, Jenny. It really has. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.